Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association, and your host, bringing you on-the-ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this episode, Bill is joined by the highly regarded Olin Alexander from PwC, a maestro of wealth management. Together, they explore the intricate canvas of asset management, delve into the transformation of recruitment trends, and discuss promising global opportunities. They shed light on the climate change crisis and Bill's recent impactful journey through the Middle East. They also navigate the complex corridors of innovative technologies like chat GPT and blockchain and the ensuing demand for more intelligent market regulation. Listen in. Owen Alexander, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you. Lovely to be here with you today, Bill. Oh, sorry we missed each other in Dublin. I think oftentimes we've been two ships crossing. We're both traveling a lot and I do get to Dublin a bit, and I know that's your home base. I don't know if it means anything post-COVID, but you're currently the global head of asset and wealth management for PwC. And I often ask the guests to begin by telling us a little bit about their background and where they've been and where they've been stationed. And for you, it could be a shorter conversation because you're a rare breed that I think has spent most, if not all, of your career at PwC. That's right, Bill. So way back when, I did my Bachelor of Commerce and Master's in Accounting in Dublin, and joined PricewaterhouseCoopers to do basically my chartered accounting qualification. Four years in, I was asked on a Wednesday, could I go to Dallas on the Friday? I had never been to Texas, did a stint in Texas, and then just a year later did a stint in Boston, which of course is the heart of mutual funds. And then finally did a much longer stint, four years in New York, working totally in private markets. So that was a wonderful experience that really set me up then coming back to Europe, where London was just exploding with new startups from an alternative asset management perspective. So got very involved with AMA, as you know, and sat on the global board there for 11 years. I also took my CFA exams and got involved with Help for Children, as well as a number of other initiatives. So, you know, have had a very varied career, although it's always been with the one firm, different locations, different client bases and different asset classes. I think I told you I started my career with what was then Price Waterhouse. The C, Coopers and Librand was not even in the mix yet. And there were eight, now four big international accounting firms. But I think even back then, the concept of wealth management and even alternative investments, if it existed, I know it did. It was in small little corners of the market and not widely known terms. And I know now you're heading up global wealth and asset management, but that probably didn't exist as a thought process earlier on in your career. And, and we talked about it a little bit before we came on, 
sort of a now a more bifurcated market. We just think about money management full stop, but it was always an institutional arena. And maybe somebody had a wealth advisor, but now wealth management has become a very established practice itself. So maybe you could talk about some of the evolutions leading up to a recent report, which we'll cover a little bit in a moment. Well, that's exactly right, Bill. When I joined the firm, it would have been asset management, and it was only in more recent times that wealth became such a big topic. But I will say, as of the last year or two, we're seeing a huge interest from so many of, I'll call it the manufacturers or the asset managers in the wealth channel. So looking at everything from the ultra high net worth through the high net worth down to the mass affluent. And as you mentioned, we've done a report and that's where we see very, very significant growth in AUM. In fact, they would be some of the key drivers of growth going into the future down the wealth channels. So a lot more, I think, activity. And as and when we see more territories bring in auto enrollment from a pension saving perspective, I think that will continue. But education is a big part of this and very important in terms of branching out into, call it the mass affluent or the retail investor. That's a consequence of some of this inevitable consolidation that you report on. I would argue, at least in the course of my career, we've seen this movie before a little bit. And coming out of ERISA, or before ERISA, the banks and insurance companies had all the asset management. And then the concept of an RIA in the institutional side or an investment advisor began. And I had a colleague who's been a guest on here, Desi Heathwood. He talked about asset management in the 70s, 80s, being very much of a cottage industry. And you just needed a couple of people in a Quotron to age myself, and you were in the money management business. The barriers to entry were very low. You didn't need balance sheet. But fast forward to the institutional side, it's become a very complex business, and you need distribution, you need technology. And then you think about the RIA and wealth space, I think the same is now happening. It was a cottage industry, but now all of a sudden, it's less about managing money for a couple of very well-to-do families. They have next generation expectations, technology expectations, reporting and distribution have gotten very, very expensive, which I think plays into this thesis where if I have the stat right, I think PwC, based on your research, is forecasting that one out of every six wealth management shops will not exist by 2027. That's true, Bill. Couldn't agree more with your commentary, but one of our findings, and I feel a little like you, that we've been crying wolf for so long that there's going to be a lot of consolidation. I think this time what we're really seeing, and I was going to talk about it, I mean, if you look at the economic environment, it's very, very challenging at the moment from an asset raising perspective. From a return perspective, you're now competing with deposit rates of 5 or 6% in some jurisdictions or bond yields that are very, very attractive relative to maybe equity markets or alternative and private market ideas. So suddenly it's much more competitive to raise that AUM, to compete for that AUM and to generate the type of returns that investors are expecting. And so all of that competition leads to a lot of fee pressure. We've always had fee pressure in this industry. It comes from the investors themselves, obviously, and greater sophistication of investors. It also comes from regulators who are looking for greater value for money. And we've seen lots of pressures around the world in that aspect. But I think what's really different in the more recent times is the competition from within. So we are seeing some really aggressive pricing in terms of mandates. And that 
pricing can go almost to zero when you're talking about ETFs or passives, but obviously looking to make returns elsewhere, whether it's a provider that has a brokerage channel, they can look at the whole client picture, as it were, from a profitability perspective. It could be making money back on securities lending, or it could be from, as well as managing the passive book at a very, very low to almost zero rate, you're managing the private side or the alternative side of the portfolio as well. So we're seeing the scale players really use their scale from an AUM accretion perspective. And that is putting a lot of pressure and causing a lot of heartache in that sort of middle, mid-size manager, particularly in the pure active space. And the margins in this business have always been high, but I assume with competitive forces on the investment side of the business, meaning more technology, higher expense, maybe a different type of professional, maybe somebody more with data science skills as opposed to a higher CFA, and then fee compression on the top line. It might have been reported in there. I don't recall it specifically, but I have to imagine as a consequence, margins in this business are going to go from a very nice high number to maybe a more reasonable number, but for the successful business, still a pretty profitable space. Yeah, I mean, this industry is coming from a very profitable space and high margin. So what most businesses are understandably trying to do is maintain that and looking at all of the levers that they can pull, whether it's enhancing the top line, but really working on the sort of cost base to try and maintain those margin levels in terms of the bottom line. And that cost base, one of the biggest line items, if I can go back to accounting parlance, is your staff and your skill set. And as you say, some skill sets now that we never historically would have seen in this industry around data and analytics, gen AI capabilities, technology, much more sophisticated around client service and customer service. So we're seeing that cost base hasn't really let up in terms of the most expensive part of the business. So organizations are really having to challenge themselves in terms of their data management strategy and how they're aligned and how they're using that. Also, we're seeing a huge, I suppose, reset in terms of this industry around, I'll call it the right model. So whether you're going to outsource certain functions that historically you might never have thought about outsourcing, but they're really not business critical. So that could be part of the legal function, finance function, tax function. So a lot of asset managers have engaged with providers like ourselves or others to really look at that model again in terms of what's core to the business, what's really important to maintain in-house, and can I get a better deal effectively by outsourcing different functions that aren't so core. Just as a quick aside from PwC's perspective, good talent is always in demand. And you talk about this change in skill set. And I remember in the good old days when there were the big eight accounting firms, they would come onto campus and interview the accounting majors and you would hopefully get an offer from one or more and off you went. I assume it's gotten much more complicated than that. And I don't know if the CPA exam has moved at a pace to cover all the skills that you need, but then you must be hiring as many technologists as you are accountants to some degree, or ideally you'd like to be in the same body. And I don't know if that exists either. No, absolutely true. The skill set in terms of our own recruitment has totally changed. So yes, of course, you still have a core number of business or finance backgrounds, but you're much more flexible around what that background is. And then, yes, technology is a huge part, analytics capabilities, knowledge around data, how to streamline and structure data are huge. 
and all of the firms are making big investments in those areas because that's the future. And like every other business, we have to look at how we can be more efficient and leverage technology to enhance delivery of our services. It also starts at a much younger age. So when I was recruiting, it was when you were almost finished your degree. Now it starts when they're not even graduates, they're children or teenagers at school in their sort of gap year often come in for work experience and we start the recruitment process there with a view to giving them a good experience, a good learning experience. And many of those students will come back to us then when they have qualified from a degree perspective. For the smart student who's curious and somewhat intellectually aware and attuned, I think there's going to be ample opportunities for them in many, many fields because I think this cause and effect of one degree yielding one potential employment opportunity It might be there if you're a doctor or maybe a lawyer, but even with those fields, a doctor could start a hedge fund. A lawyer could go and work for a private equity shop. So I I think the world could be your oyster if you put your mindset to it. True. Lots of nuclear physicists managing money these days. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just back to this consolidation theme for a moment and what you're seeing. And if you're in a position, not necessarily give advice, but your observations would be helpful. So in the good old days, in terms of my experience, if you were a long-only shop, and you were thinking about diversifying your offerings, you could go from small cap to large cap of value to growth, or maybe even put a long-short aspect to your long-only investment process. But if I'm thinking now, I want to add private equity. That is a very different mindset, different set of investors. Due diligence is extremely important. And trying to do that organically, I don't want to say it's impossible, but probably near impossible. I'll come to distribution, the challenges there in a moment, but it seems to be a natural consequence that the world is moving more toward alts, thinking about diversification beyond the 60-40, that just trying to do this organically, unless you're a very, very large shop with a lot of patience, I think would be a near impossible thought process. We have a great phrase called build, buy, or borrow. And I think the borrow is the really interesting piece. So We see lots more innovative approaches around, call it joint ventures, alliances, finding businesses that are complementary to your business where there's a good cultural fit. So, for example, if you don't have distribution in a particular region or down a particular channel, but you have a product range or an asset class that another manager doesn't have where they have what you need, coming together in some sort of an alliance or JV has been an area that we've seen a lot of growth in, but also tremendous potential as well. I mean, you do see it in the fintech space. So a lot of asset managers have embraced fintech to sort of innovate. Again, it could be for distribution purposes, customer service, whatever. But from a core asset management capability, definitely seeing much more appetite. Again, also because many asset managers may not have the balance sheet to go and buy something. And so they have to be innovative and entrepreneurial about how they get a greater offering together for their clients. The other challenge, I think, with horizontal sort of expansion is integration. So if you look at active managers who've gone out and maybe bought into private markets, skill sets and capabilities, culturally, those type of organizations are very different and very difficult to bring together then for a consistent culture. So You've got, you know, in the private markets, often very strong personalities, very different reward structures, very entrepreneurial and agile. And, you know, a larger, maybe more traditional manager 
just operates in a very different way, probably has higher standards from a governance and an oversight perspective. So bringing those organizations together can be quite difficult. And I think the cultural side, it's sometimes an easy thing to say. I'm glad you brought it up because having seen this myself, and you've seen it many times over, I was part of a startup that we sold to a a Dutch-based asset management firm, and everybody talked about culture, culture, culture. And a stereotype, but in reality, it was true, too, that the Dutch were very transparent and very open-minded in what they say and what they did, but they had done an earlier acquisition in New York. And if we had a blind spot, the cultural clash between the Bostonians and the New Yorks were almost like the Red Sox and the Yankees. That's where the rubber kind of hit the road. So I think being mindful of that and culture, maybe with a capital C, because if these are partners that you're looking to bring on, you've got to find ways of working cooperatively. Maybe one other aspect of this, Owen, that I'm curious about in terms of cross-border, both in terms of extension of products or new products or distribution. And I think distribution has been around a long time, but if I'm in the buyout space in North America, but I want to think about opportunities in the Eurozone or parts of Asia, how important is it to be thinking about a global opportunity? Because I've said it oftentimes on this platform that Alpha's found where the least number of people are. So in that less traveled world where there's more inefficiencies, and you're not going to find that so much in North America anymore. There are pockets of it, but are you seeing a lot of cross-border opportunity where it's a strategic fit that makes sense? Yeah, I am actually. And and that probably comes back to sort of maybe opening up new channels from a distribution perspective in different geographies, but also looking at, as you say, investment opportunities across the landscape. I would say managers more in the private market space are, they're not geography agnostic. That's not correct to say, but they will look at a sector and go very deep in that sector and sort of aren't biased necessarily by location Having said that, I think some markets are particularly attractive. So if you take, for example, Indonesia, very large growing population, so big consumer base. If you're going to Asia, you're going to think about somewhere that has large consumer base for your consumer kind of opportunities. So it's becoming a much more globalized world. And then I guess if we're talking about distribution, we're seeing a lot of focus on some of those markets that maybe managers steered away from historically because they were just very difficult, very different from a cultural perspective. So the Middle East is an area where we're seeing huge amount of interest now and people are starting to make the investments that are needed to sort of really invest in a local presence because I think the local knowledge, just as you find in Asia as well, is extremely important when you're trying to grow in these markets. The Middle East is an important one to mention. I was there twice this year, and I just came back from Riyadh in the UAE about a month or so ago. And particularly in Riyadh, what's going on there is very, very impressive. They were trying to repoint the economy by 2030 away from oil, and the amount of mineral resources they have there, what they're trying to do with the sovereign wealth money behind it, by sheer size of balance sheet and will, I think they're going to get it done. And it's really amazing to see the pace of change. And if you look at what's going on in the ground there now versus where Abu Dhabi or Dubai might have been 15, 20 years ago. You can kind of see how it could end up. It bears watching, and I think it's going to be a very interesting story to play out. Also, I think it's for maybe for some of the listeners too, it's a faraway place and culturally maybe very, very different if you're from the U.S., and it's got different social norms. Women are starting to give more and more rights, but more work to be done there. 
alcohol and other social norms are still banned in that part of the, the world too. But all that being said, they need entrepreneurs. They need professionals over there. If you want to disrupt your career, it could be a very interesting place to go and get one of these golden passports. And it could be a very interesting place early or mid-career to really learn a lot very, very quickly, which is part of what defines success for both you and I, and I think for many others. Yeah, no, and absolutely seeing, just anecdotally, seeing a lot of young people go there because it's so difficult, for example, to get on the property ladder in some jurisdictions. So it's a great place to go, A, for all the reasons you listed, but B, from a reward perspective, given the tax environment, that you can actually get some savings together for maybe future investments. I agree. Two, not so much related things, but it reminded me as I was listening to Owen, I, I want to talk about both regulation and then maybe ESG, but ESG more specifically, perhaps talking about climate. And starting with regulation, I think one of the challenges, perhaps as maybe a US-based asset manager, it's more complicated than just flying into Riyadh or flying into London or Nigeria and planting a flag and off you go. And as much as I think IOSCO and organizations like that are trying to harmonize regulation, if we have 190 somewhat different countries, we probably have 190 different regulatory regimes. And unless you understand the local customs and practices, you could stub your toe or even worse. So maybe some of your observations as you think about these multi-jurisdiction managers, how important is it to make sure that you've got the right compliance and regulation structure in place? And I know this is some of the work that organizations like AMA do. The EU has gotten to be a very complicated place as well. So maybe just talk about the importance of regulation and how you see that developing. Regulation obviously plays a very important role in the markets. And I think it's important that it comes with a sense of responsibility by the regulators too, because they can have such an influence in flows and investment opportunities, particularly as we think about democratization of access to alternatives, regulators, what role they'll play. I think one challenge that regulators have, and it's an age-old challenge, is keeping pace. And that's no disrespect to any of the regulators, but the velocity at which things now move in our world, for example, even the internet technology, Gen AI, I mean, trying to keep up with all of this innovation and the speed at which it happens is a constant challenge for regulators to stay on top of. I do across the world see a lot of sharing across regulators. So why we may not have consistency in approach, we do see regulators coming together to talk about areas that they see as troubling or challenge or might need more work. And certainly in Europe, I see more cooperation across borders in terms of certain maybe territories taking a lead in a particular area, maybe because the market is more advanced in their particular region, which helps. But just like you, Bill and Kaya, I'm all for harmonization. So the more that we can get that, the better. And we are seeing different regulators move at different paces. I've just come back from a trip to Hong Kong, actually, and was quite nuanced and different about Hong Kong and also Singapore and, and maybe some other jurisdictions is the promotional mandate that some regulators have, whereas in other jurisdictions, they most definitely do not have a promotional mandate. And that can certainly help bolster business effectively, but hopefully in a good way, because I think the regulators will always be careful, but at least have an open door to listen to what the local industry or the markets need to grow. I don't know if I travel as extensively as you do, but you mentioned Hong Kong and Singapore. I would put the SEBI in India on that list of regulators. 
and also the asset management community where they have a concept of a sandbox and working together. And we've got to have regulation that is sensible and protects the investor. But if it's protecting the investor full stop, a lot of the value propositions get, get rinsed out. So we've got to be thinking about transparency and financial literacy. And these are very, very hard things to do. And I just don't know if I see that on a consistent basis in markets like the U.S. And we've got to get on to a better plane. And I think it's a responsibility for both the regulators and the asset management community to try to get together, especially as you say, and I've seen this in the course of my career, the pace of change over the last five years and the coming five are beyond anything I've seen in the entirety of my career. And I don't see it slowing down. And even ChatGPT, nobody was talking about that, about the beginning of this year. Now it's on everybody's minds. And we're constantly looking at and using it. And I think it can be very, very effective. But again, even there, I think we have a responsibility to be trying to use this correctly because the Eurozone is much better with GDPR. We don't have a national definition of privacy here. So I think our industry is going to be defining this, at least in the US, in real time, which is an honor if it's done right. It can be quite scary if it's not. And left to the best intentions of capitalists, sometimes what's in the best interest of the end investor is not always how things necessarily end up. No, absolutely. It feels like we're building the plane as we're flying it. So there's so much change. It's very fundamental to businesses. As you say, now ChatGPT is being embedded in business operations. And we think about, for example, from a legal perspective or a regulatory or an audit perspective, how do you keep up with that? Because suddenly the way things were done last year is very different from the current environment. And are you in a position to work with it? I don't know on this subject, Owen, if you're seeing much in the way of digital assets. And if you think about virtually any asset out there, it could be tokenized and put into blockchain and fractional shares could be bought and sold. And that's all on, on the one hand, probably a good thing because it's giving investors more choice. It's got to be done with the right transparency and the right understanding. But again, maybe regulation is lagging, but asset valuation has always been a challenge for the client, for the GP, for the auditor. And we always said, I remember back in, again, the good old days, these level three valuations, which might have been a complex fixed income security, but now it can be a variety of things. And how challenging is valuation? And maybe you could tie that into tokenization of assets if it makes sense from your vantage point. I would say, especially when we talk about digital assets, if you're talking about something that's relatively well traded, the valuation isn't the challenge. Ironically, it's something that we would discuss less, which is existence. So ownership and title, which many people think, oh, but it's on the blockchain, it's all recorded, where's the problem? But if you actually look at maybe some of the providers, some of whom are quite new in startup phase and the control environment that you find there, there's often commingling. People unfortunately have suffered as a result of this. So actually being able to prove title is quite a challenge at times when it comes to digital assets, but huge amount of innovation happening in this space. I think it's super exciting. It should enable fractionalization and the private markets and access again, which will be very exciting in time. But we've a little bit to go, I think, in terms of regulation, control environment, and really understanding what you're buying when you buy something that you, A, yes, you can value it, but B, that you own it as well. We do have some growing pains clearly in front of us, but I'm curious your observation from my standpoint, net net, if we can 
get over some of these rough edges, I think this could be a very, very good phase for the investor. It's not a given, and we have to make sure regulation, transparency, access, a lot of moving parts, but greater access beyond just the traditional set of opportunities, I think is something that every investor deserves, but they got to get there in a, a fair and open way. Agreed. In the last few minutes we have, Owen, I just want to talk about ESG, as I mentioned earlier, and we could talk about that broadly and more specifically climate. And we're sitting here on November 21, and this will probably air in a couple of weeks. I don't know if this is toward the end of season one or season two, they're sort of blending together, but we're sitting here today, and I think just yesterday, the world hit the two degree warming threshold, I think for the very first time. And coming out of the Paris Accords in 2015, 1.5 Celsius was the goal, and two is the upper limit. And we didn't just slightly cross over. I think it was 2.07, so rounding up to 2.1. Maybe today it's a little bit cooler. And just because we breached, it doesn't mean we're going to stay there. But certainly globally, we're moving in the wrong direction. The Eurozone has been a much better leader than other parts of the world. But I would like to think maybe some of this innovation can help solve for some of these climate risks as well. But what is your take on the current state of play on climate? And are we channeling the right amount of money in the right direction or resources too splintered? And if you had a magic wand, where would you wave it to get this thing on the right track? If I had a magic wand, I think I would definitely like to see more policy intervention because I think there's nothing like incentives or penalties to change behavior. And we've seen that in so many instances in different territories. So for example, I never go grocery shopping without my reusable bags. I, sometimes I go to locations and people still use disposable plastic bags. So you can adapt very quickly when there's a charge if you're using plastic bags. So I think we have a lot of work to do. As you say, 1.5 looks almost insurmountable at this stage. So we are talking about 2%. One of the big challenges, aside from the complexity of how to tackle it, because there are so many angles, is that this has become very political and politicized. And we all know in certain jurisdictions, it's seen as something that we shouldn't have to worry about. And it's penal to returns in portfolios, for example. Well, that's not going to be much use if there isn't a planet that we can actually survive on or generations that follow us can't. If all of us look at our day-to-day -day lives, I'm sure we can list off four or five immediate impacts of climate change that we're seeing in our own personal lives. This is very real. And I think we need some really concerted effort. It'll be really interesting. And of course, we'll be following and presenting at COP28. It'll be really interesting to see if we can get some consensus. I think one of the thorniest issues is around the developed nations supporting the underdeveloped or the nations that have suffered as a result of the developed nations and the harm that they have provided Anecdotally, in my trip to Hong Kong last week, I was speaking to someone who had been to mainland China recently, and they commented on the total revolution in terms of vehicles there. Almost everybody's in an EV. So I do think the strength of policy change and, as I say, incentives can really help try to move the needle because we need to move it very, very quickly and very drastically. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I look at China I know there's been some issues and challenges, and she and Biden were together in San Francisco again just last week in mid-November. But China does have a command-based economy, and they say, go, and you have to go. I think you're absolutely right here in the U.S., and maybe it's different in other parts of the world. How you dress and how you walk and how you vote say something about you. And 
the other side of the aisle does not like you nor tolerate you. And that's bad because we've got to find ways of coming together and pay attention to the science side of this. And it's interesting with COP coming up, it's in a place, there's oil dependency in the UAE. I know they're more tourist driven in the UAE, but it's interesting in that part of the world. And I think that's making a good and an important statement about what we need to do collectively as a populace, because we are running out of time. I would say, keep on keeping on there. We've got to continue to try to find ways of coming together in the emerging markets, as you point out as well. These are emerging economies that somebody has to support them through a transition. And maybe the last piece that I really liked a lot, Owen, is that what can you and I do individually? The answer might be, well, nothing. But the U.S. is a consumer-based economy. Nobody wants to own scope three emissions. But if each one of us says, I'm going to own my little piece of it, I'm going to try to find a way every single day to be a little bit less convenienced about the use of what I was encountering yesterday in terms of fossil fuels and my footprint. And it will make a difference. And I think that kind of mindset is very, very important. That's true. I think the power of the collective. So we could all individually say, well, my part won't make any difference. But if you get 100 million people pulling in the right direction, then it absolutely will move the needle. Yeah, we add up. So maybe just to close out, I'm a consumer of your research. Maybe there was less of it put out when I was there 40 years ago, but a lot of the research you put out across the board is very, very good. And I don't know if there's anything coming up in the shoot that's disclosable in terms of your next uh, long-form thought piece or some of the themes you're thinking about in this next turn. We debate this at my leadership team table, and we've already sort of landed on a topic. So the top two were to look at the whole wealth channel, but the next gen. So preferences, saving patterns. It's fascinating some of the differences that you see. So for example, Bank of America did a survey last year, ages 21 to 42, that cohort, 75% of them believe that they need to invest outside called the traditional model of the 60-40. If you look at those over 43, it's only a third. From a third to 75% as the next gen comes on board. I thought that would be a really interesting area, but I think the one that won out was Gen AI. So it's top of mind for every CEO I speak to, every client is innovating, is excited about the potential, wants to know what use cases are out there. But we talk a lot in PwC about responsible AI. And so I think bringing some of those messages through our findings, what we usually do is a survey, survey asset managers and institutional investors. So to try and really repeat that back then in terms of the findings. So it's not just a PwC view, but it's a market view. Well, I look forward to seeing it and reading it and maybe have you back on next season to talk a little bit about the findings there. Super. Always a pleasure. Best to you and your family for the coming holiday season. And hopefully I'll see you in Dublin or somewhere around the world in early 24. Great. Thanks so much, Bill. Always good to chat. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.